The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning, everyone. Our first case this morning is in Ray Lenane, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is John Keller and I represent the petitioner Frank Lane. I am assisted this morning by co-counsel Joseph Chilton, Cindy Patton, and Celia Pistolis. And Mr. Chief Justice, I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal from my time. We are here today to ask this court to find Mr. Lenane qualified to receive his unemployment benefits because when Mr. Lenane left work to protect his health, he did so with good cause attributable to the employer. The findings of fact show that Mr. Lenane wanted to keep working, but his employer changed his job duties and the pain in Mr. Lenane's knees, knee problems that began with an on-the-job injury, caused Mr. Lenane to resign. The Court of Appeals and Respondent acknowledged that Mr. Lenane had good cause for leaving. Therefore, we will focus this morning on what the employer did and did not do to show that Mr. Lenane's good cause, his leaving work because of the condition of his knees, was attributable to the employer. Before you go too far, can you tell us what the standard of review is here, please? The findings of fact are reviewed based upon any competent evidence, and then the conclusion of law is de novo. Which, which at least as I understand it, uh, to follow up on the chief's question, means that uh, we look at, we make a de novo determination of whether the trial court, the, the uh, division's findings support the conclusion that was reached. That's correct, Justice Irvin. Okay. It, all, it always helps to at least know what question you're asking yourself when you start. Great. So therefore, we'll focus this morning on, again, what the employer did and did not do to show that Mr. Lenane's good cause, the condition of his knees, was attributable to the employer. We will address two points. First, the employer made a business decision to change Mr. Lenane's job duties. Second, the employer, based upon its business needs, could not respond to Mr. Lenane's requests for changes in his new job duties. Attributable to the employer. Attributable to the employer simply means that the good cause, the reason for leaving, resulted from some action or some decision by the employer. So first, what did the employer do in this case? What is the employer's action? In 2016, at which point Mr. Lenane had already been employed for four years, the employer merged with another company. And upon the merger, the employer decided that they were going to eliminate service technician position and the installation technician positions as separate positions. And instead, they combined installation work and service work into one technician position. Before the merger, Mr. Lenane had been a service technician. Now, Mr. Lenane was going to be doing service work and installation work. Was there a finding of fact that uh, before the merger, before uh, the uh, name change of the position, uh, was there a finding of fact that uh, even as a service technician, uh, that there were instances where there uh, were installations? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. Finding of fact number six states at times. And it's clear that Mr. Lenane was trained to do installation work. The vast majority of his work as a service technician was service work, which is less physically demanding than installation work. 
And the change that occurred at the merger when Mr. Lenane's job now included service calls and installation calls is that the amount of installation work increased after the merger. Is there, and I guess this was the question that I was going to ask to follow up on the chief's question. Does the amount, does the amount of installation work that your client had to perform after the change in 2016 have any bearing on the resolution of whether attributable to the employer or not? Yes, that is a central component of our argument, Justice Ervin. Where in the order is there a finding one way or the other as to how much installation work your client actually was required to do following the merger? The findings of fact, unfortunately, Justice Ervin, do not state how much installation work Mr. Lenane did before the merger as a service technician compared to after the merger when installation work became part of his job. Was there evidence received by the referee that addressed that question? Mr. Lenane testified that he believed his installation work comprised about half of his work after the merger. His supervisor stated that he did not believe it was that high. The supervisor acknowledged that installation work increased for Mr. Lenane after the merger. There was no resolution by respondent about how much the installation work increased, but there was no disagreement at the hearing. Installation work, in fact, increased for Mr. Lenane after the merger. Is it your contention that any increase whatsoever is sufficient to show attributable to the employer or was it necessary for the appeals referee to make a finding concerning that apparently disputed factual issue? I think a finding is not necessary because it was simply the amount of work, installation work that Mr. Lenane now began to do that became the basis for him to say this knee pain as the finding of fact 11 indicates increased difficulty with doing his installation work because of his knee condition. And the question of how much did the installation work impact his ability to do his job, that's a question of good cause. Was there enough of an increase that made it reasonable, would a reasonable person believe that Mr. Lenane had a valid reason to leave work and it was not indicative of an unwillingness to work? And that issue has been conceded. And I understand that and maybe I'm just not understanding what you're telling me properly, but is it your argument that any, as long as there was any increase in the amount of installation work following the merger, that that's sufficient to satisfy the attributable to the employer on test? No, Justice Irvin, we're not saying that if he had to do one more job per month, that would automatically mean attributable to the employer. We're saying that based upon the evidence presented at this hearing, the amount of installation work that increased for Mr. Lenane was of sufficient degree that it gave him good cause to leave the job and that that change was attributable to a decision by the employer. How do we make the determination that you just described in the absence of a finding as to how much additional installation work your client was required to do? I think the concern goes to the issue of good cause. Did he do enough more, did he do enough increased installation work to present good cause for leaving? And that issue has been decided. Right, I mean, I don't understand there's no dispute about good cause. So your argument is that the amount of installation work, additional installation work that your client was required to perform is irrelevant to the attributable to the employer component of the test? 
Yes, I think what I'm saying just deserve is that the, the change was made by the employer. The amount of that change is not critical. It's the change. How did that change impact Mr. Linnaean? And whether it was a 10% increase, a 25% increase, a 50% increase, that is not critical. It's the, it's the fact that there was a change that then did result in difficulties for Mr. Linnaean to do his job. And so there's, we're not asking the court to have to set any bright line rule for the change has to be a certain amount. It's the fact that the change in this case was enough to then create problems for Mr. Lene. I have a sort of related question. Um, in the findings of fact, there's a couple of findings to the effect that he left the job because of his health um, and specifically the condition of his knees. Um, there's a finding that he um, notified the employer that he couldn't do his job because of the health condition of his knees. And there's also a finding that it was a work-related injury. And I don't see a finding to this effect, but his testimony was that it was a workers' comp claim. Um, does I don't think there's any dispute that it was a work-related injury. Does that have any effect on the analysis of whether um, it was attributable to the employer? Justice Hudson? If I'm having trouble hearing you, volume is very low. We'll see if we can increase the volume. If you could just speak up a little bit, that might help. If Mr. Lenane had suffered his injury off the job prior to the merger, and then the merger occurs and he's given increased installation work that then makes it more difficult on his knees, we would still be making the same argument to this court. The fact that the injury occurred on the job, I think it goes both to the question of the employer's awareness and knowledge of the difficulties Mr. Lenane had and seeing how the job impacted his knees. It also goes to show the kind of hard worker also that Mr. Lenane was. At the time of his original injury, you know, he didn't simply leave work, take a worker's comp clincher agreement and go find some wider work. He came back to work. And when he came back to work, as the findings of facts show, by favoring the knee that had just been surgically repaired, he then caused problems in his other knee. And it simply, I think, just goes to show how willing Mr. Lenane was to continue working up until the time he decided he had to resign. Does the record reflect, and I, I couldn't find it if it does, whether um, he was, I understand he got a 15% rating to his knee after the surgery um, that would typically be paid by workers' comp. Does the record reflect whether that was ever paid or whether he was told he might be able to get additional workers' comp benefits? I don't believe there's any further discussion of the workers' comp issue. Okay. 15% rating simply shows up in one of his medical records. There really was not much discussion at the hearing about that. He just testified to that effect. Okay, yes. thank you. Counsel, how should we regard the fact that as addressed in finding effect, the employer had positions available to accommodate the petitioner's request for administrative duties? The petitioner didn't want those jobs because they were in the petitioner's words, as found on page 92 of the record, quote, 100, 110 miles, 125 miles away, unquote. Justice Morgan, this court in Barnes versus Singer and our Court of Appeals in Watson versus Employment Security Commission took a look at the issue of what happens when an employee's commute is increased. And in each of those cases, the employee was not able to make the commute. In Barnes versus Singer, it was about 11 miles. In Watson, it was from Charlotte to Mooresville, very short distances. And in each of those cases, this court and the Court of Appeals said that the employee was qualified to receive benefits when not being able to make that commute. So we have a 
argued that finding a fact 12 is simply irrelevant, that if it is good cause to receive unemployment benefits when you can't make a commute from Charlotte to Mooresville, then certainly it is wrong for a respondent to insist that Mr. Lenane should have relocated from Maggie Valley to South Carolina or to Tennessee before he can show good cause. Well, but you use a term cannot make the uh, commute, and you also use a term the employer's insistence in terms of talking about good cause attributable to the employer. It's not clear, at least from the record, that the petitioner could not physically make the commute, uh, as appears in the record at least, and the employer appears to have given the best accommodation to the petitioner that could be occasioned by giving him the closest opportunities, which just happened to be 100 miles away. Well, the requiring that Mr. Lenane relocate out of state would be an unreasonable requirement that, and the issue of relocation, that's an issue of what remedial step could Mr. Lenane have taken? And they responded at the Court of Appeals when they conceded good cause. They also stated that remedial steps go to the issue of good cause, not to the issue of attributable to the employer. And stated that regardless of these potential remedial steps, Mr. Lenane had good cause. Simply good cause again simply is it is a valid reason that does not indicate an unwillingness to work. And for someone to say, I'm not going to uproot my family and move out of state, a reasonable person would consider that to be a valid reason, not indicative of an unwillingness to work. Is it your contention then that the distance therefore is tantamount to a lack of an opportunity for the petitioner to remain employed, even though he voluntarily left his employment in lieu of taking the administrative duty positions? Yes, in this case, both opportunities were excessively far and that requiring Mr. Lenane to physically uproot his family and move would be a requirement that is well beyond what the standard of a valid reason, not indicative of an unwillingness to work would require. Take a look at attributable to the employer as defined in that Watson versus Division of Employment Security case. Attributable to the employer is simply, it's a decision made by the employer for the benefit of the employer and it's a decision over which the employee has no control. And that is exactly what happened in this case. The employer merged the service and installation technician jobs. The employer then decided that we need to keep a fair balance of distribution of work between all the technicians. And Mr. Lenane, that was done for their benefit. It was a unilateral decision by the employer over which Mr. Lenane had no control. It changed the circumstances of his employment. I think significantly, perhaps to address your concern, Justice Morgan, about other steps the employer took. Attributable to the employer does not mean that the employer's actions in any way have to be wrong. The employer does not have to engage in any kind of conduct that you would feel to be blameworthy or fault-based for the cause to be attributed. It is a value neutral decision. You simply analyze that a decision was made, who made the decision, and how did that impact the employer? Because in fact, if you take a look at the facts of that Watson case, the, the company moved the location of the facility. Before Ms. Watson decided to resign, the employer was actually driving Ms. Watson two days a week to the new facility trying to help her keep her job. She tried to do it for several months and finally she was unable to do it. So there wasn't anything wrong from the employer's perspective. They're a business decision prompted them to relocate. 
they actually assisted the employee in trying to get to the new job. It didn't work out, but the inquiry for chapter 96 is simply was that reason attributable to the employer who made the decision? And there was no evaluation of whether or not we believe the employer engaged in anything wrong. Similarly, if the employer takes steps, and in this case, the employer's steps did not in any way relieve the knee pain from Mr. Lanay. How should this court uh, evaluate an employer's accommodations? Uh, here, for example, there were the knee pads that were um, allowed and, and provided by the employer. There were uh, instances where uh, other workers assisted on some of the installations uh, on which the petitioner was assigned. Uh, there was uh, a move afoot uh, by his supervisor to at times uh, keep him away from having to do some of the more strenuous installations. Uh, how do we measure those kinds of accommodations which are addressing in terms of a, an employer ameliorating good cause? Those considerations, Your Honor, are not relevant. 96.2 says unemployment benefits are paid to an employee if the employee is unemployed through no fault of their own. When you leave work, how do you show no fault of your own? You go to the statute at question here, you have to show good cause, and you have to show attributable to the employer. The remedial measures that the employer took did not in any way allow Mr. Lenane to avoid the constant knee pain from doing installation. There is no, in a sense, good faith exception to analyzing whether or not Mr. Lenane is entitled to his unemployment benefits. Mr. Lenane's burden of proof is to show good cause attributable to the employer. There is no third step that Mr. Lenane also has to show that the employer acted wrongfully or that the employer's actions were inadequate. The employer's conduct is simply what was the decision? How did that decision impact Mr. Lenane? The fact that the employer made some attempts and tried to help, as findings of fact 16 and 17 say, in the big picture, they're not relevant because they in no way ultimately mitigated the pain that was caused by doing installation. I think the dissent has pointed that out, that despite efforts, the issue is whether or not Mr. Lenane's health was still being impacted by his job. And those steps the employer took did not alleviate that. Assuming arguendo that the employer had accommodated every desire that the petitioner had, including somehow being able to have an administrative position uh, on a local basis, but yet the knee situation became so exacerbated that he could not even sit without knee pain. Would the petitioner still have been eligible if he decided to leave his employment voluntarily from administrative duties? Would he still qualify for good cause attributable to the employer and therefore employment benefits? That's a more, I agree, Justice Morgan, that is a much more difficult call. Clearly, it's the installation work that is causing the pain in his knee that prevents him from being able just to get up and go to work without constant pain. If the employer has offered sedentary work, and at, at that point, I think there's going to be a much more difficult argument to make that then his leaving is attributable to the employer. So, so is it then your argument that is, um, in essence, that unless the employer had granted Mr. Lenane's request to be uh, excused from the necessity to perform any installation work, we have attributable. We have attributable to the employer. Yes, that's correct, Justice Irvin. Okay, I'm just. I'm again. I'm trying to understand the the, the arguments to make sure that I, I can 
do the best I can to evaluate them after I understand them, but it really helps to understand them. Thank you. That's correct. The quickly, the dissent also points out as our second point here that the nature of the the cause is attributable to the employer based upon the employer then making a decision that it's policy of fair distribution among all technicians was paramount. That was the only reason the employer offered that they would not allow Mr. Lenane to go back and do increased service work as opposed to installation work. Although the dissent re refers to this as inaction, in our opinion, labels are not important. It was still a decision of the employer that keeping an equal workload among its technicians was what it wanted to do. And the impact of that decision was to then force Mr. Lemayne to continue to accept and have to do installation work. I see that my time has um, reached the 25 minute mark. If there's any pending questions, I'll be glad to answer. Otherwise, I'll reserve my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the FLE. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, my name is Elias Edmasu, and along with my co-counsel Sharon Martin and Arvillan Peterson, the Chief Counsel, I represent the North Carolina Department of Commerce Division of Employment Security, the APLE. The decision of the division in this case boils down to this rule of law, where the division found that an employee resigned for health reasons without giving the employer a chance to try to continue the employment via accommodations or intermittent leave as recommended by his doctor, the division did not err in concluding that that employee failed to meet his burden of proving that his separation from employment was attributable to the employer. In this case, the division found that prior to the employer's merger with another company, the appellant's duties included installations and that when the appellant asked his manager to, to not assign him installations, the manager could not do so but the manager did make efforts not to dispatch him on the most strenuous or large installations and tried to ensure that he had assistance whenever he did do full installations. The division also found that the appellant chose to resign without requesting workplace accommodations from the employment, from the employer's human resources or administrative staff and without seeking intermittent leave as recommended by his doctor. These findings were based on competent evidence in the record and they support the conclusion of law here that the appellant felt to meet his burden of proving that the separation was, quote, produced, caused, created, or the result of actions of the employer, as this court set out in the CPNL versus ESC case. The Court of Appeals majority was correct in affirming these findings and conclusion based on the applicable standard of review, as well as the requirements of the applicable statute, General Statute Chapter 96, Section 14.5a. The dissenting opinion in the Court of Appeals, which is the sole basis for the appeal here, disregarded the standard of review and misapplied the Ray versus Broyle Furniture Industries. The dissenting opinion in the Court of Appeals also misapplied uh, Section 2 of the Employment Security Law, which is just the general statement of the policies behind that set of laws. The rule that I've set out here uh, produces the most reasonable results in this and in similar cases unlike the rule that's being proposed by the appellant in this case. Therefore, this court should affirm the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals. I'm going to focus my presentation on these points, but welcome the court's questions regarding any other issues and the uh, appellee rests on its brief regarding any issues we do not get to reach today. So as to the first point, the Court of Appeals majority upheld the division's findings of fact where there was any competent evidence in the record to support them. This is required under Section 15I of the Employment Security Law. That section indicates that the findings of the division, if there is any competent evidence in the record to support them and in the absence of fraud, shall be conclusive and the jurisdiction of the court, this is the reviewing court, shall be confined to questions of law. As this court observed in the Binney versus Banner Therapy Products case, the legislature Amended the standard review. Mr. Just, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked uh, Mr. Keller just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, I don't recall any specific finding of facts that the referee made 
uh, as having been challenged for lack of sufficient evidence. So the question before us, as I understand it, is uh, based upon the trial court's findings, not the evidence in general, but the trial court's findings, did was there error in finding that there was uh, the attributable to the employer part of the test wasn't met? Is that your understanding too, or do you have a different Justice Urban, our position is that based on these findings, there was no error in concluding that the appellant I, I, I understand that's your position, but, it, but we do determine de novo based upon the findings whether or not the necessary showing of attributable to the employer was made. Correct. Right? Okay. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, just, I mean, while I've, while I've got, got you, uh, I asked your colleague if it mattered how much additional work the uh, claimant was required to make uh, following the employee, uh, the, the, the merger, how much of that related to installation work as compared to, you know, service work. Uh, he said it didn't matter. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? Can I restate your question, Justice Urban, just to make sure I understand it? Are you well, asking? I'll be, I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to take another crack at answering it if, if it wasn't clear, and it may very well not have been. Um, I, I had a discussion with Mr. Keller about the issue of whether it mattered how much additional installation work Mr. Lenane was requested to perform after the 2016 merger. His answer to that question appeared to me to be no. Uh, do you agree with that? I disagree with that. Uh, the changes in the terms and conditions of employment can be a factor in uh, determining whether uh, there is a separation for good cause attributable to the employer. Uh, that was not present here. Because well, there was no finding. There appear to be there appear to be findings that say that Mr. Lenane was initially trained to do both service and installation work. That uh, he then did service work. That at the time of the merger, the two departments, installation and service, were merged, and that after that, he was expected to do both service and installation work. Uh, does the amount of additional installation work that he was required to do following the merger have any bearing upon the proper resolution of the attributable to the employer question? No, it's not dispositive. It's part of the analysis, but it's not the end of the analysis. So, no. Uh, in other words, so, here, so your, his, his, his answer to my question, I think, was that's irrelevant. Yours is it's relevant, but not conclusive. Exactly. So that's did, not the end of the, did the trial court. Did the was there a dispute in the evidence as to whether, uh, as to how much additional installation work Mr. Lenane was required to perform after the uh, uh, 2016 merger? There was. So the appellant testified that before the merger, he had to do approximately 10 to 15 percent installations. And after the merger, he had to do approximately 45 to 50% installations. And his supervisor, Randall Goodson, testified that, quote, he was not receiving 50% of installations versus service work. This is after the merger. He also testified that he reviewed the last three months prior to the separation from employment and that the appellant did 10 installations in the three months before resigning, only one of which was a full installation and had assistance. So it was. Go ahead. So it, there was a dispute regarding how much of an increase or whether there was any increase uh, in, in the number of installations. Uh, but the dispositive. Did, 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 the, did the findings of fact that are before us in this case uh, resolve that dispute in the evidence? And if so, where? Findings of fact six and seven sufficiently resolved that issue. The findings of fact there indicate that prior to the merger, the appellant had to perform installations and was trained to do installations when he was hired. This is at findings of fact six and seven. Right. And, for, and for the purposes of this case, Your Honor, whether there was a 15%, 40%, 50% is not dispositive because here the, the, the crux of it is that this employee uh, has to show that the reason for separation was caused or created by the actions of the employer. 
and where this employee essentially deprived the employer of an opportunity, a reasonable opportunity to try to avoid the separation by requesting the accommodations or FMLA leave that were recommended by his doctor. Now, the record indicates that his doctor uh, allowed him to return to work in 2017 with restrictions of just prolonged, uh, avoiding prolonged standing and walking. The doctor allowed him to return and supported intermittent leave of approximately one to two days a month for arthritic flare-ups. So under those circumstances, regardless of the extent of increase in installations, uh, the employee who had the burden of proving that the actions of the employee of the employer were the reason for separation could not deprive the employer of an opportunity to try to avoid the separation. Here, let there was me, a let funder. me focus you on a slightly different aspect of the findings. In finding number fifteen, um, there was this finding of fact that um, the claimant asked Goodson if he could only be assigned service calls. Um, and that the manager denied his request because he needed to keep a fair balance of work distribution um, among all of the service technicians. Um, the dissenting opinion in the Court of Appeals focused on that aspect of it um, and relied on Ray for the proposition that um, that inaction, that refusing to accommodate his request because of the policy of keeping the work balance placed the employer in the untenable position of having to choose between leaving his job or exacerbating his knee condition. Um, and that's essentially um, language from Ray. Um, do you agree that the quotations from Ray by the um, dissenting opinion are an accurate statement of the law? That if the employer is placed in that, if the employee is in the untenable position of having to choose between their health um, and leaving their job because of inaction by the employer to accommodate it, that that's good cause attributable to the employer? That is an accurate statement of the law, Justice Hudson, but the dissent misapplied the law in this case. So the dissent disregarded the standard of review and essentially indicated throughout the dissenting opinion, not whether or not there was any competent evidence to support the findings that were made, but rather that Judge Inman would have essentially found that, quote, the appellant's deteriorating knee condition prevented him from performing work. The division made no such finding that the employer's business needs precluded accommodation. Again, the division made no such findings. And in this case, finding effect 15 is that the appellant asked his manager to avoid installations. Uh, this finding does not indicate that the appellant asked the employer to uh, accommodate the doctor's recommendations against prolonged standing or walking. It does not indicate that the appellant asked the employer to uh, undergo intermittent FMLE FMLA leave that was recommended by his doctor. He simply on the ground, so to speak, asked the manager to uh, avoid installations and the manager having to uh, maintain a fair distribution of work as found in findings of fact 16 and 17 made efforts to try and limit the number of strenuous or full installations. He tried to ensure that if he had to do a full installation, there was someone to assist him. But under these circumstances, the appellant was required to at least make a reasonable attempt at asking the employer, that is the HR or administrative staff, to look at his accommodations or to give him FMLA leave. So, um, and he did not uh, can, do can so. I just, sorry to interrupt you, but I do want to ask you about that point. Uh, is the, do our, does our case law say that asking your, asking your manager, asking your supervisor is not sufficient to um, indicate that you're that you need um, an accommodation for a health reason that that there's there's some legal requirement that you identify someone else in the company that you must make that request to. I thought we no, had cases that said actually the opposite. As long no, as you made some some request. That is correct, Justice Earls. It does not set out a bright line rule that one has to go to the administrative or HR personnel. And this has to be. I'm sorry, finish your question. No, not at all. Uh, this has to be a case by case analysis. So, in the Ray case on which the dissent relied and which Justice Hudson pointed out, in that case, the employee was given a recommendation by her doctor who told her, You have to either A, get a mask, or B, move out of this department where you're being exposed to fumes. That employee directly told her supervisor the doctor's recommendations. 
Here, Mr. Lenane did not tell his manager about this, the, uh, the restrictions or the recommendation for FMLA. He just asked to stop doing installations. Also in Ray, that supervisor made no efforts, whereas here, Mr. Goodson testified and findings of fact 16 and 17 indicate that he made efforts. In Ray also, the employee was threatened from going to, from going to upper management. The uh, manager in Ray told the employee that he would fire her if she went over his head about not acting on her request. So of course, under those circumstances, an employee should not have to go to upper management or follow some formalistic approach. But here where we have facts indicating and evidence indicating that this gentleman had workers comp and it looks like the employer uh, put him fairly through that workers comp process in terms of handling the return to work process. This gentleman also underwent FMLA in 2017 for five weeks and returned to work. So it looks like this employer had uh, appropriate HR measures, but this employee testified that he chose not to ask the employer for accommodations or FMLA. So under these circumstances, which are very distinguishable from Ray, uh, the employee had to at least give the employer an opportunity to act on the request. The statute places the burden on the employee to show that the employer uh, did not, uh, or that the employer's actions are what caused the separation. And here the employee testified when he was asked, you know, despite his doctor's recommendations for restrictions, his testimony was, quote, I never requested anything formally in writing. I talked to Randall Goodson, who is his manager. I didn't formally send emails, but we did talk about just trying to like reduce the work if it was possible. That was his testimony. When so, I, I, I don't mean, again, I don't mean to cut you off, but um, we are dealing with the findings of fact, right? Not the testimony. Yes, Your Honor. That's our, so, because um, our job is to look at to whether the courts, the um, Employment Security Commission referees findings support their conclusion. So, so the testimony um, and, and whether that's the testimony of the claimant, the testimony of the employer, um, we're limited to what's in the findings of fact. Am I right about that? Yes, Justice yes. Earls, you are correct on that. Uh, and, so then, and so then I do, it, it sounds like you're resting on um, finding of fact 21 um as 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 your as the factual support for your contention that this was attributable that, that this was not attributable to the employer and and my and my question is it, it, isn't it true that so, so it, he did take fmla leave um but the accommodation that he was requesting was an accommodation that would allow him to continue to work and receive wages whereas fmla leave would mean he would not be paid and would not receive wages uh, so, in this case, Justice Earls, that, that's not quite correct because he took a five-week string of FMLA leave in 2017 and then he returned to work. At that point, the doctor indicated that he could take what's called intermittent FMLA leave and the doctor indicated in the record that he expected that to be one to two days per month for arthritic flare-ups. The doctor also indicated in that record that this employee could work full-time. He indicated 40 hours per week. Uh, subject to those intermittent flare-ups. And so he's had that option from uh, September 2017 through 2018, but he decided and his testimony was that he felt that that would essentially be futile. And so he did not request that prior to resigning in November 2018. And so that's what supports yeah. this uh, finding of 21. Let me follow up on that. Does the record reflect whether um, the employer informed him that um, if he had reduced wage earning capacity because of his work-related knee problem and needed to take time off from work that he could be um, entitled to disability benefits, either partial or total from workers' comp? The record does not reveal that. So the, the workers' comp aspects in this case are, are not addressed in the, in the record. Uh, there is a provision in the employment security law regarding a reduction in wages, but that is not addressed here. Um, it does not appear to apply here because it would not necessarily be due to a lack of work at the employer, but those issues were not addressed in this record. Um, but there's, no, there's no dispute, at least in the findings of fact that his knee injury was a work-related issue. No, Justice Hudson, there is not. You know, part of the problem here is that uh, Section 14.5A focuses on whether there's good cause, which as counsel points out, we've conceded, but the case law and the statute indicates that the separation from employment 
has to be attributable to the employer. It has to be caused or created due to the actions of the employer. And where are where here, uh, an injury occurred four years prior to the resignation. Uh, a merger occurred approximately two years prior to the resignation. And a doctor- let me, focus your, let me focus your attention on the findings of fact, but the findings are that he requested uh, less strenuous work because of his deteriorating knee condition. And ultimately there's a finding that he left his job because of his knee condition um, and that that had not been accommodated. Why doesn't that show um, that there was a good cause that he was put in a difficult situation because of the employer's unwillingness to make that change because of the policy of maintaining balance among the employees of duties? That we don't contend that or we don't dispute that there was good cause here the appellant's knee condition is good cause but whether or not his separation is attributable to the employer his, the finding was that in finding of fact 15 the claimant asked his manager randall goodson if he could only be assigned service calls due to the less strenuous nature of those jobs the finding was not that the employee either asked mr goodson or the hr or administrative staff uh, to abide by the doctor's recommendations against prolonged standing or walking. There was no finding that he asked Goodson or anyone else for the intermittent leave of, oh, I'm having a flare up. I'm going to need to take a few days off. And so that that is the problem here is that his informal discussions with the manager about him not wanting to do installations, which were apparently strenuous, uh, his testimony regarding not wanting to have his workday structured in a certain way is not sufficient to show that the employer's actions are what led to the separation. He testified and the division found that he chose to resign without availing himself of the accommodations and the intermittent FMLA that were recommended by his doctor. More importantly, where the legislature put the burden of proof squarely on the appellant in 1989, which was after the Ray case, which uh, the dissent relied on, in, in 1989, the legislature made clear that the burden is on the employee and that the burden cannot be shifted onto the employer. So where this burden is on the employee to show that the separation was due to the employer's actions, uh, he what, couldn't deprive. Mr. Admasi, what if what happened here isn't sufficient to show attributable to the employer, what would be? We had... Now, I realize hypotheticals like that are hard to answer, but you've said what you think isn't sufficient. Uh, what is? Sure. Uh, so could there be circumstances where if if he had requested these accommodations or the intermittent leave, could that show attributable to the employer? It could. Uh, but he did not in this case. And, and I, I, I hate to, I, like Justice Earls, I'm going to apologize for persistently interrupting you, but uh, I guess I'm not going to, I guess I'm going to do it. Uh, the, uh, is, is, is your argument based upon the timing of uh, the requests that were made, the degree of formality of the request? No, the argument is, the, our argument is that it is unfair on the ground and unrealistic on application on the ground to where there are reasonable uh, options for the for avoiding the separation and where the employee has to show that it was the employer's actions that led to the separation for the employee to essentially deprive the employer of the opportunity to continue work. In this case, hypothetically, let's say that the commission had found that we, 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 you know, we, we know there was a, there was an FMLA leave taken in this case. There was also some intermittent days off taken because the claimant's knee hurt. Uh, hypothetically, if the, if the uh, uh, division had appeals referee had found that the problem continued to exist after these measures had been taken in the past, would that make any difference? that that would make a difference you know so under uh, here we've conceded that there's good cause and if had the employee uh requested the accommodations or intermittent leave prior to deciding to resign then that could show that the, that the separation was due to the actions of the employer uh, we're not so, so that in the event that in october of 2018 or whenever the 
separation occurred if instead of resigning at that point he said well once again i want to take fmla leave or uh, some other type of intermittent leave took it and then at that point came back and continued to have knee pain that would that would be sufficient in 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 the division's view it, to show attributable to the employer yes so, it, so basically, basically, basically then the complaint is as to the timing at which uh, the claimant tried these other options? It's, it's as to the, the claimant did not give the employer an opportunity to avoid the separation. And so the claimant cannot then argue that it was the employer's actions or inactions that led to the separation. That, that is the, the argument here. So where the division found that the, the employee decided to resign without requesting accommodations or intermittent leave, he could not then meet his burden of proving that it was the employer's actions that led to that. Well, let me ask you about, about that. If, the, if the, the findings of fact were that he asked his manager if he could only be assigned service calls due to the less strenuous nature of those jobs, why, doesn't that, why isn't that sufficient of a request for an accommodation? Because he had the burden of uh, showing, he had the burden of showing that he that that it was employers in actions, and if he never went to HR to ask for those accommodations, as far as no prolonged standing or walking, or if he didn't take the intermittent leave that was recommended by his doctor, that is that I, I is. Thought you, I thought your response to Justice Earls was that he was not required under the law to go to HR, and the finding of fact was that he requested that accommodation of his manager and the manager denied it because they needed to keep a balance of tasks among the workers. That's a finding of fact. Why is it not uh, sufficient? Uh, Justice Hudson, my, my statement to Justice Earls was not that he was not required to go to HR in this case. I was trying to say, and if I misstated it, my apologies, that that's not a formal, uh, a formal requirement in all cases. But in this case, it was reasonable for him to at least advise the employer of a request for accommodations or a request for intermittent leave. All he did here and all that was found here was that he asked his manager not to go on installations and the manager did make attempts to avoid that. So the constellation of efforts that the, uh, that the, that the manager took here, the actions that the manager took here were to reduce the load of installations and he testified. The finding was that his manager denied the claimant's request. Um, for the to be assigned less strenuous jobs because he needed to keep a fair balance of work among the service technicians. And I yes, that's, that's contrary to what you were contending. Well, there was also a finding of fact 16 and 17 that the manager made attempts not to dispatch him on the most strenuous or large installations and that if he had to be dispatched on a large installation that the manager tried to ensure that another employee was available to assist him. Further, further, uh, Mr. Admasi, the, the, there are findings that this was tried. There's yes. no finding that I can see as to the extent to which these attempts were actually implemented or successful. Is that a correct reading of the order? That all we've got is attempts? Yes, that's all we have here because the employee did not go to HR to ask for accommodations or intermittent leave. All right, um, me, I know you've answered this question a couple of times, but I, I, I want to make sure I understand your answer. Why does it matter whether he went to Mr. Goodson as compared to HR? Uh, simply because here he went to Goodson to ask not to do installations. His doctor's recommendation was not against installations. His doctor's recommendation was that prolonged standing and walking would be problematic. His doctor did not take him out of work in September of 2017. His doctor allowed him to work 40 hours a week and provided for intermittent leave of one to two days per month for flare-ups. So this doctor who had been seeing him all along essentially uh, did not recommend at that point that he no longer work or that he not do installations. He had the option of doing that, but he only recommended it against prolonged standing and walking. Um, and uh, recommended intermittent leave. And so where the employee has the burden of showing that the employer's actions are what led to the actual separation, the employee can't deprive the employer of the of the ability to take those actions and then argue that the separation was attributable to the employer. The, the reasonable application of the law here and in the many cases that the division has to face is that 
where circumstances show that the employee deprived the employee employer of a reasonable option to 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 try and avert avert the separation the employee did not meet their burden of showing that the separation was caused by the employer's action uh, there are options for continuing employment uh, that are outside the scope of employment law of employment insurance law such as ada accommodations fmla workers compensation chapter 96 is strictly focused on trying to reduce the number of unemployment uh, where it is due to no fault of the employee. An employee who deprives their employer of information to try to avoid separation cannot be said to have been separated due to no fault of his own. The other uh, goals of this chapter are to discourage the spread of unemployment and to encourage the, uh, the stability of employment. Well, if an employer cannot take the actions that it's entitled to under the ADA accommodations provisions or FMLA or even workers' comp, then that tends to increase unemployment. It tends to decrease the stability of employment. Uh, what we're asking for here, and again, this has to be applied across the state and to, to leave the decision of whether it's futile to ask your employer for accommodations or leave when your doctor recommends it, to leave that decision to an employee without any consultation with the employer under circumstances where it's reasonable, unlike in Ray, where the manager threatened the employee and therefore it wouldn't have been reasonable, is just untenable and unsound. And for these reasons, we ask that you affirm the majority decision of the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Regarding the installation work Mr. Lenane did after the merger, I direct the court to page 116 of the record that's the page where the supervisor described the amount of installation work at the conclusion of Mr. Lenane's employment. And what respondent fails to state is the very next words out of the supervisor's mouth is that at that time, the, Mr. Lenane's workload was consistent with the other employees. Mr. Lenane was still pulling his fair share of the load at the time he resigned. The employer changed the job. Now, it seems as if respondent is now blaming Mr. Lenane for the change that the employer implemented by not allowing the employer enough opportunity to make some accommodations. That's not what the findings of fact say. The findings of fact make clear that the employer was aware and that Mr. Lenane made those requests to his supervisor. And to respond to Justice Earl's concern, it's not only the Ray case that states that the supervisor is the employer. Marlowe, which is a court of appeals case, and Marlowe then cites N. Ray Warner. All of those appellate decisions stand for the principle that going to your supervisor means you went to your employer. There is no further obligation to take your complaints outside beyond your supervisor. But you agree that finding a fact 15 appears to have occurred uh, in September of 2017, and there's no finding of fact with regard to any further request of uh, accommodation after September of 2017. Just maybe there is no further finding. However, there was no dispute at the hearing that Mr. Lenane went to his supervisor in October of 2018 and made another request. And then that's what prompted the resignation in November of 2018. There's no finding, but there was no dispute. Regarding the medical evidence, I direct the court to pages 192 and 193 of the record. That is the release from the FMLA in 2017, and it's a, it is a misrepresentation to say that Mr. Lenane was somehow generally released to go back to work. He was released to go back to work with flare-ups that were going to occur one to two times per month, which were going to require him to be out of work for several days for each flare-up. It was not simply one or two days per month. It was one or two times per month with several days for each flare-up. This condition was going to last his lifetime. There is no indication in that doctor's release that just by saying you can go back and try to do install work that you weren't going to suffer pain every single day. 
It was simply that the flare ups were going to become so extreme one to two times a month that you're not going to be able to get out of bed and you're going to have to take several days off work. The findings of fact in this case make clear that Mr. Lenane had a knee injury. The injury was aggravated by the increased installation work. He made requests to the employer for accommodation. Their business policy, which becomes their decision, which makes it attributable to the employer, is the reason Mr. Lenane then resigned. That's what the findings of fact say. There's no need to have to go search the record for other evidence, which is, to me indicates the weakness of the findings of fact that the respondent is moving outside those findings of fact to try to support their conclusion of law. Lastly, chapter 96, this court has stated is a remedial statute. All provisions for disqualification are to be read narrowly in favor of the claimant. Thank you, counsel. I believe your time has expired. Thank you, everyone. Madam Clark. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 15 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court.